Father, we thank you because you're good. Lord, as we think about what tonight represents, that Jesus was betrayed for us, that he was arrested, falsely accused, illegally tried, and then the innocent Lamb of God was killed for us. It's a lot to take in, and it gives us so much reason to celebrate because he did it for us. It's a demonstration of his love, and we are eternally grateful. I pray, Lord, that you would guide us through your word tonight. Help us to hear the things that you would have us hear, to change those things in our hearts that you have a desire to change, and to do the work in and through us that you desire to do. In Jesus' name, amen. So on Wednesday, we studied the Last Supper, which Jesus instituted the night before his crucifixion. And during the Last Supper, Jesus declared that his body would be broken and his blood would be shed for the establishing of a new covenant of grace, whereby we could be saved through him. The Last Supper foreshadowed the events that were going to take place the next day and the events that we are going to study today, just like communion for us now looks back. It commemorates, it remembers those same events. So if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Luke 23. I, said, I think I said that. And if I didn't, we're going to pick up in verse 26. Now we are skipping for sake of time because to really get a complete picture of everything that happened that night would require visiting all four Gospels. For example, in Luke's Gospel, he records Jesus' trial before Pontius Pilate and then his trial before Herod and then he goes back to Pontius Pilate. Um, if you go back you will see his uh, trial before the Sanhedrin. Um, all in all, if you take all four Gospels, he had six trials. Now, a couple of them were before Pilate, and a couple of them were before the Sanhedrin, but he all in all had six trials. And if you continue to go on and take the accounts from each of the four Gospels, there are a number of details that no one gospel writer put down for us. And that's the beauty of having four Gospels. But since we've been traveling through the book of Luke since the end of November, we're going to look at Luke, with a mention or two to the other Gospels. So Luke 23, verse 26. Now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves 
and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren wombs that never bore and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? So the condemned would often carry their own cross beam, right? So they had the vertical pole was already there. And the cross beam, uh, where their hands would go, they would have to carry up with them. And the cross beam was not light. It, I mean, it depends on who you look at. Some scholars take it down to about 70 pounds. Some put it upwards of 150 pounds. I don't know. Does anybody know what a railroad tie weighs? That's what I picture, is something like that, right? We have our cross in here, but it wasn't a two-by-four, right? You can, pretty much anybody can carry a two-by-four. It's not, unless it's just really long and awkward to get through a door, but heavy-wise, but I think of something like a railroad tie, and that's what he had to carry. And this was after he had been beaten beyond recognition. He had not slept. He was dehydrated. And they put this on the back that had been torn open by the scourging. And so he couldn't do it. And Simon was grabbed out of the crowd and told to help him. Now in Mark's gospel, in chapter 15, 21, when this scene is written down for us, Simon is the father of Alexander and Rufus. Rufus is mentioned in Romans 16. So this experience apparently had a lasting impact on that family, and at least one of the sons came to know Jesus as Savior. Now Jesus shows his compassion on those who are weeping for him, for the judgment that would come upon Jerusalem. And I find it incredible that Jesus shows compassion on those who were witnessing his crucifixion. I'm throwing it out there. If I was about to be crucified and there was a crowd there, I'd be like, well, instead of crying, why don't you knock the soldiers down and get me out of this? That's my attitude. But it wasn't his. He said, don't weep for me. Weep for what's coming. And I love that he, just the phraseology that he puts in here, and yes, that's a word. The days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore and breasts which never nursed. Because both when Rome destroyed Jerusalem, roughly 38 years after this, and when we go ahead to the book of Revelation and we see the wrath of God being poured out on the world, it would be much better to not have a small child in that, what word am I looking for? Nightmare. Nightmare, yeah. I was going to say situation, then I was going to try to be fancy and say milieu, but I can't spell milieu, so I try not to use it. Um, the whole point being, when you go up to the book of Revelation, there are portions where as God pours out his wrath on the earth, they know 
that it's the wrath of the Lamb. They say it. They know it's the wrath of God being poured out, and they want the mountains to fall on them and hide them from the wrath of God. Now, if hailstones weighing 90 pounds and on fire are landing all around me, and there's boils, and the water is turned to blood, and massive earthquakes, and all the various things that take place during the tribulation. If that's happening, and I know that it's God who's doing it, wouldn't you think they would repent? But they don't. They just want to hide. It's why, it's one of many reasons why I am so grateful that I won't be there. And y'all there, be, we'll all be up there together. And we won't be watching it. We're going to be at dinner. Marriage supper of the Lamb. That is the wrath that Jesus has delivered us from. But all of this is Jesus' compassion. All of it's Jesus' compassion. James 5.11 says, Indeed we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, and the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. And so something that I, I think is amazing is you could look on this scene without the knowledge that we have. And oh, how sad is that? This poor Jewish man being killed by the evil Roman soldiers and the evil Roman governor... Right? And, and you look at that from his perspective, and it just looks horrible. I love that James brings up Job. You go back and read the book. If you're ever having a bad day, I tell you, go read the book of Job. Right? And one day, all of his kids die, all of his, all of his wealth disappears. Bad day. Then, when he doesn't curse God... Satan says, well, can I cover him in boils? And God says, yeah, just don't kill him. And so he's sitting in the dust in sackcloth with broken pottery scraping the boils on his skin to try to get some relief from the pain and probably the itchiness of those boils. And his wife, right? Wives should encourage their husbands. Wives love their husbands. Wives are there holding their husbands up. She walks outside. Why don't you just curse God and die? Thanks, babe. Yeah, in our day and age, we'd get it in a text. <laughs> Why don't you just curse God and die? And he looks at her and he says, should we take good from the Lord? Not the bad also? Now, it wasn't God who was causing the bad. And we know the rest of Job's tale. And we see the end intended by the Lord. That after it was all said and done, and he never sinned against God, everything was restored. Now, maybe, if we've lost something here, we want it restored here. And that's not always going to happen. Sometimes we're going to lose something here, something that we wish we hadn't lost. And it's really easy to get angry with God. And I'll tell you, it's okay to be angry with God. Just don't stay that way. 
because he has an intended end that we can't see. And he is compassionate and merciful. And so while we may not get it back in this lifetime, whatever it is, he will restore it. And he's going to restore it in a way that we can't even imagine. That's one of the many things that was purchased for us on the cross. Verse 32. There were also two others, criminals led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Now, I purposely stopped halfway through that verse. We're going to come back to that. Our Bibles give us three simple words. They crucified And this simple statement has incredibly far-reaching implications. So let's take a moment and talk about crucifixion. I do this every year. I apologize in advance. But we need to know what he did for us. The Persians are credited with inventing crucifixion. But the Romans perfected it and they used it for three reasons. One, it was incredibly painful. We get our word excruciating from the Latin word for crucifixion. <laughs> yeah, uh, sorry, Facebook. For the Latin word for crucifixion. <laughs> it's late. It's Friday. Um, but that's where the word excruciating comes from. And so when I was younger, y'all know I struggle with gout. And, and I used to say long ago, um, before, I mean, I was a Christian, but before I knew what where excruci- the word excruciating came from, I used to say I was in excruciating pain. And once I learned that word, I, I've not said it since. Oh, I might be in a lot of pain. It might hurt real bad, but I'm not being crucified. It's not that bad. Second, it was a lingering death. Oftentimes, it would last four days. And third, it was a horrific deterrent for similar crimes. We're going to see it with Jesus. They always posted the crime above the victim. And so you're walking down the street. You see this guy. He's been hanging there for two days. Nothing left of him. And the crime above him. You know, I I was thinking about robbing a bank. I don't think I'm going to do that now. The specifics. We know that it began with scourging, using a a version of a cat of nine tails embedded with metal, glass, and rock. And they didn't just hit the victim with it. They would hit the victim, and then they would pull. And essentially, they would flay the victim alive. And it would result, of course, in great blood loss. We know about the crown of thorns. Uh, now, we, when we think of thorns, I don't know about you, the first thing that comes to mind to me is a rose bush. You know, and they're little thorns. And if you poke one, you're going to bleed. That's not the kind of thorns. It would have been about an inch. Oh my God, about an inch. 
right? It was about an inch long. And we often see, when we see Jesus' crucifixion depicted, it as like a little, like a little circlet around his head. But more likely, it would have been much more like what we think of as a beanie. And it was pressed into his skull. So it wasn't just here. It was pressed into all of his skull. Josephus called crucifixion the most horrific of deaths. So right, all of that happened before we ever got to Golgotha. Hands, wrists, and feet were nailed with a seven-inch iron spike. When it went through the wrist, and you know, some people go, oh no, it had to be his hand. It says hand. Well, in, in that day and time, the hand was everything from the forearm up. The same thing applies in pickleball. This all counts as your hand. That's how they counted it. So right here, and we do this every year, you feel the two bones right there? Right? Put your, put your fingers right there where the two bones meet. Right? And if you push hard enough, right, you can get in there. Move your hand. Feel the muscles moving. Feel the nerves. Right? All of that's in there. All of that would be severed when the spike went through. And it was both hands. It would cause the hands to clench and cramp with extraordinary pain radiating up the arm. And because the muscles and nerves had been severed, you couldn't do anything. You couldn't straighten it back out. It would miss the artery, which limited blood loss. Then you had the feet. And a lot of crucifixion uh, depictions get this right because his knees would have been bent to one side and then it would have gone through the top of his foot. And the purpose of bending his knees was so that he could push himself up on that spike to breathe. This, of course, would cause similar nerve damage it could sever an artery, causing greater blood loss. But the Romans were very good at what they did. And if they wanted the person to suffer, they would miss those arteries because they didn't want them to bleed out. But it didn't break the bone. And they have found skeletons of crucifixion victims and shown that this could be done without breaking bones. And so then breathing became nearly impossible and incredibly painful because hanging all your weight from your wrists like that would cause your shoulders to dislocate, it would cause your ribs to get pulled out of place, and it would cause your lungs to become compacted and made it very difficult to breathe. So the only way to take an actual breath would be to push yourself up on the spikes of your feet. Because your shoulders are dislocated and all that, you wouldn't have the strength. But you had the strength to push yourself up on your feet. And it is natural, right? As human beings, it's natural that if we're running out of air, we want to take a breath. You would think, you know what? I'm just going to hang here and I'm going to make it quick. I'm not pushing myself up. I'm not taking a breath. But there's something in us that will make us try to take that breath. And over time, you would become so tired that you wouldn't be able to push yourself up anymore. And most crucifixion victims died of asphyxiation. That's why if they wanted to make it quicker, they would break their legs because then they couldn't push themselves up 
and they would asphyxiate much, much quicker. They crucified him. So we have to ask the question, why? Why would Jesus do this? The reason, a sinless sacrifice. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that he, speaking of God the Father, made him, speaking of Jesus the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the reason. We could not be saved apart from his crucifixion because there's nothing we can do to become righteous. There's nothing we can do to earn God's favor. So he did it for us. It is the worst exchange in history. I remember when I was a kid. Yeah, it was a while ago, but I remember. Maybe you, maybe you did this, right? You would be in, in your classroom, third, fourth grade, and you'd have a brand new pencil. And your, your friend, neighbor would be like, oh, what a great pencil. I want that pencil. Well, I'll trade it for your big eraser because I got more of these, right? And you would usually barter. Did, am I the only one who did that in class? Thank, Kelly and Aaron. All right, thank you. Yeah, I was just... Well, well, at some point in time, you know, it was chisel and, and raw and slate and it was, it was a little different. Um, but think about this exchange. My sin, everything I have ever done, am doing or will do that is against the perfection and holiness of God. And Jesus took that and he said, here, you can have my righteousness in exchange. Worst deal ever for him. Best deal ever for us. Worst deal ever for him. And so you have to go, okay, well, that's the reason why. But why would he even make that exchange? And that's the motivation, which is love. Romans 5, 8 and 9 says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. There's been arguments for years about who is to blame for Jesus' death. Do we blame the Romans? It was a Roman cross, Roman nails, Roman soldiers, Pilate, was ultimately the Roman governor who uh, passed the judgment against him? Was it the Romans? We can go through scripture and you find a place where the, the Jewish leaders standing out there and, and Pilate goes, I, he's done nothing wrong. I, I don't want to spill innocent blood. And the Jewish leaders cry out, his blood be upon us and our children. How dumb was that? They got their wish. So was it that? Was it my sin that held him to the cross? No, my sin put him on the cross. It's not what held him there. It was love. It was love. Because of the reward he would receive. Does your note say Romans 12.2? For the next verse? No, it's Hebrews. Oh, I just did it wrong in my notes. Hebrews 12, 2. Looking unto Jesus, 
the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That was his reward. The joy that was set before him. And you know my theory about this. I don't care. I'm going to share it anyway. You and I were that joy. And I fully believe, I can't prove it, I fully believe that while he was on that cross, the joy that was set before him was the face of every person who would believe. Now, him being God, he can see things faster. I don't know how it worked. I don't, I don't know. But I believe it. And at one point in time, he stopped on my face. And he said, worth it. I don't know, Lord. I don't think I'm worth it. But he thought I was. That was his joy. And as they were pounding the nails into his wrists and his feet, he said, Father, forgive them. Jesus' love and compassion are seen again as he prays for the forgiveness of those who were murdering him. And the purpose, of course, of his crucifixion is our forgiveness. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. You being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. I love that verse. Now Jesus offers hope, verse 34, the second half. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, This is the king of the Jews. And if you remember, I believe it's John's gospel, where uh, the Jewish leaders were really upset. No, just write that he said he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, What I have written, I have written. I think Pilate may have gotten a clue about what was really going on. And one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So dividing his garments was a fulfillment of the prophecy of Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, Mocking him and being crucified between two criminals is a fulfillment of the prophecy from Isaiah 53. And then they mocked him saying, You saved others. Save yourself. If you come down, we'll believe you are the king of the Jews. 
Now we know in Matthew 26, 53 that he could have done it. When he was being arrested and Peter lopped off Malchus' ear and, and then Jesus fixed it and he told him, put the sword away. Do you not know I could call for 12 legions of angels? Now as we get into the word of God, angels were pretty tough dudes. One angel in one night wiped out 173,000 Assyrian troops. One. Now, a legion was between four and 6,000. There were 12 of them. Waiting, which puts it somewhere between, uh, well, four times 12 is 48, and six times 12 is 72, if I'm right. Feel free to check my math. Somewhere between 48,000 and 72,000 of the dudes that can wipe out 170-some thousand soldiers in a night by themselves. And they were just standing there waiting. And all he had to do was say, Father, I can't do this. Send the boys. And the boys would have come down. And it would have been very unpleasant for those who were there. But why couldn't he save himself? Because if he saved himself... He couldn't save us. And I love the thief. I love, love, love the thief. Two people crucified on either side. The third one was supposed to be Barabbas. So whatever happened, Barabbas and these two other folks, these two other men, likely did it together since they were being crucified together. And we know from the other Gospels that both criminals started out mocking Jesus. And at some point in time, one dude hearing the other dude mocking Jesus goes, wait a second. Dude, don't you fear God? We deserve this. He's innocent. And he looks over to Jesus. Lord, remember me. Jesus says, I love it. Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, there's so many interesting things about that. It teaches us very, very beautifully and very, very simply that all we have to do is believe. Right? The repentant criminal, he knew he was a sinner, he never went to church. He was never baptized, he never tithed, he never read the Bible, he never served in the nursery, he never watched The Chosen or gave copies of it to his friends. Right? He never handed out tracts during Cattleman's days. He never did any of that. He never went on Facebook and po posted a, a, a BC cartoon by Johnny Hart about Good Friday. Never did that. He never did anything. He looked and he said, Lord, remember me. Now, the faith of this man is incredible. He probably had never met Jesus before. How did he know that he was Lord? How did he know he was going to receive a kingdom? Typically, Put yourself in our shoes, in our society. 
murderer strapped into an electric chair. They're about to flip the switch. How many of us are going to believe that guy has a future? But this guy looks at Jesus being crucified. and He says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. How? How did he know? There's only one answer that I can think of. If you can think of a better one, feel free to share it. But I can only think of one. And that's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit at work in that man's heart. The Holy Spirit revealing to him who was on the cross next to him. And all of a sudden, it clicked. And he knew. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 reminds us that it's by grace that we have been saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. The criminal on the cross could do no good works. Romans 10, 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that verse is demonstrated perfectly. Lord, remember me. Jesus said, you got it. Now imagine, after they both died, right? we know Jesus descended to preach to the captives, to lead captivity free. Just imagine that moment. Jesus died first. And then they broke the legs of the other two, and when they came to him, he was, Jesus was already dead. So they didn't have to break his legs. So Jesus died before the criminals. So Jesus went first. And whether it was a few minutes or an hour, or however that time frame worked, it doesn't really matter. The criminal who just got saved died as well. And he opened his eyes, and Jesus was right there. Welcome home. I'm going to tell you a few things, and then I'm going to introduce you to Dad. And that's what he did. How cool is that? Verse 44. In verse 44, now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly, this was a righteous man. And we, we don't get all the really cool stuff that happened. We get it in the other Gospels. There was an earthquake, darkness, the veil of the temple being torn, just craziness. And the centurion goes, he was a righteous man. In Mark's Gospel, we're told that the centurion said, surely he was the son of God. I'm thinking he said both. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all the acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. I've got to go back just a smidge. So we do see darkness here. Oh, we see the veil of the temple. Did you guys notice that, that I read that and then forgot about it? Wow. It's after 8 o'clock. I should be in bed. Um, but we have darkness. 
It's related to creation mourning the creator's sacrifice. Habakkuk 1.13 says, You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Isaiah 59.2 says, Your iniquities have separated you from God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. And it was our sin that separated Jesus from the Father. Our sin. The darkness concealed Jesus from the Father's gaze. The tearing of the curtain in the temple is beautifully symbolic. That curtain always represented to the Jewish people that they could not go into the presence of God. When Jesus died, that changed. Now, through Jesus Christ, we can come into the presence of God every moment of every day for the rest of our lives here and then for all eternity. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus died after our sins were paid for. His life was not taken from him. It was given freely for us. John 19.30, Jesus said from the cross, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The word in Greek is tetelestai. And it means paid in full. The full price of our salvation was paid on our behalf. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 tells us, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. Verse 50. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision indeed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock, where no one had ever lain before. That day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew near. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils as they rested on the Sabbath, according to the commandment. So Joseph is buried, or Joseph, sorry, loans Jesus his tomb. Joseph was waiting for the kingdom of God. If he had been paying attention to Jesus, he knew that he was only going to be in there for three days. Because this is not the end. Sunday is coming. We call it Good Friday because Jesus did all of this for us. We celebrate his death and resurrection because it means our forgiveness our redemption, our freedom from sin with the free gift of eternal life in Christ and so much more. For believers, we remember this and we reflect upon it because what Jesus has done for us means life. 1 John five twelve, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. 
Can't put it any simpler than that, can you? If you have the Son, you have life. And if you don't, you don't. For anyone with us tonight, and I know all of you, and you'd better be saved. And if you're not, you better tell me so we can get that fixed. I can't fix it, but God can. But if anyone's joining us online or anyone listens to this recording later, and you don't know Jesus, if you do not have the Son, you don't have life. And he did this for you as well. He offers salvation to everyone who will believe in him. And I always get a kick out of, Billy Graham wrote The Four Spiritual Laws. Is it Billy Graham? Or was it Campus Crusade? Bill Bright, Bright, Campus Crusade, Four Spiritual Laws. I should have put that down, I would have remembered. Bill Bright, Four Spiritual Laws. Number one, God loves you and created you to know him personally. And he loves you so much that he sent Jesus for us. And believing in him brings us eternal life. John 3.16, John 17.3. So what prevents us from knowing God personally? Well, we are sinful and separated from God, so we cannot know him personally or experience his love. Romans 3.23 reminds us that we're sinful. Isaiah 59.2 tells us that our sin separates us from God. And Romans 6.23 reminds us that the wages of our sin is death. But God, but God, Two of the greatest words in the English language. But God. Well, he decided to do something about it, didn't he? He sent Jesus Christ as the only provision for man's sin. Through him alone, we can know God personally and experience his love. He died for us. He rose from the grave. And he is the only way to God. Some good verses. Romans 5, 8, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 6. And John 14, 6. And knowing this, what do we do in response? We must individually receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And then we can know God personally and experience his love. We must each receive Christ as Savior, John 1.12. Repenting of our sins, 2 Peter 3.9. Trusting in his grace by faith, Ephesians 2.8 and 9. Jesus is inviting us to, the, inviting us to this. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be forgiven set free, adopted into the family of God, and experience the new birth that is offered to us in Christ. Isn't that great? It's glorious. Yeah, good news. Such good news. And so if you're listening or you hear this recording later and you need that, go to our website, leave me a message, or comment on Facebook. I would love to chat with you about that. Now, I have a problem. And my problem is this. For as long as I have been a Christian, I have never been able to read the account of Jesus' crucifixion and stop. I just can't do it. It boggles my mind. It really doesn't, but I can't do it. Chapter 24, on the first day of the week, when very early in the morning they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared, but they found the stone rolled away from the tomb and they went in and did not find the body of Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. 
but is risen. We're going to talk about that more on Sunday. But how cool is that? For Jesus' death was not the end. And as his followers, it's not the end for us either. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Lord, I wish there were words big enough to say thank you. I can't think of a single phrase that communicates the adoration and love that I want to give to you for what Jesus has done for me. So thank you is going to have to do. I pray, Father, that you would give us your grace, that you would give us your peace, that you would help each of us to remember no matter what the world says about us, no matter what our enemy says about us or what social media says about us or whatever else, you looked at us and you said we were worth it. And we give you the glory for that. In Jesus' name, amen.